Three things we'll talk about. The struggle that's described here is normal. The struggle brings you to the end of yourself. And the struggle brings you to Jesus. So the struggle described in what we're about to read is normal for the Christian. And that struggle brings you to the end of yourself. And that struggle brings you to Jesus. So why don't you stand up and we'll read it. Uh, This is Romans 7. We're coming in halfway through the chapter. We read a little bit of it last week. This is the word of the Lord. It is powerful and able to make you wise for salvation. So hear your God as he speaks to you. Through Paul, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I don't do what I now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me that does it. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want, that's what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, it's sin who dwells in me. So I find it to be a law, or a principle, or a reality that whenever I want want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, warring, uh, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for your grace in having this recorded in your word. We thank you for preserving it, that we get to read it, uh, that it speaks to us freshly tonight. We also know that you're a God who never speaks stale, old words. Your word is always cutting edge. It is always situation-specific and person-specific, and it hits us where we are tonight, where we need to be hit. And it picks us up and carries us where we need to be carried. And so we pray for all of my, uh, my friends here. And I pray for myself because I am in the same place of need. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and in the next 30 minutes minister to us through your word. Increase our faith and give us more of yourself. Or, or give us eyes to see how much of yourself you've given us, which is all of you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks. So there's a few times throughout the, uh, the past fall where I've kind of mentioned there's a, some important questions that we as Christians or maybe you as a non-Christian uh, have to deal with one way or the other. One of the important questions that you've got to deal with, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, is this question. What is a normal Christian? Or what's a normal Christian look like? Um, now, there's a lot of options. If you uh, have been on, I mean, even if you spend a day on campus and you were looking for answers to this question of what's a normal Christian look like, you would have a lot of different options. Uh, Maybe you've got a roommate. Maybe this is you. Maybe this is a church or a ministry you used to be a part of. But you've got someone where the kind of Christian they are is the triumphant, rah-rah, I'm always strong, I'm always winning. Uh, There's no failure. There's no weakness. Um, 
Sin is something I talk about in the past tense because that's what I used to struggle with or do before I met Jesus. Uh, and it's kind of, it's a powerful, attractive gospel. And it has an allure of, man, maybe if I went there or I did what they're doing, uh, I would be free too. So that maybe that's one brand of Christianity that you might be tempted to wonder, is that what Christianity is supposed to be? Is that normal? Uh, or perhaps another one that you see is that person in your small group. Or that person in uh, maybe one of your sweet mates. They're kind of the Christian that you admire. Their life seems free of tension. Or if there is tension, they deal with it awesome. Like, they're just amazing. Uh, they're respectful to people. They're friendly. They love people well. Um, they're insightful. Their prayers are amazing. And you're tempted to look at that person and say, they got it together. They got their ducks in a row. Um, and you wonder, is that, is this person the normal Christian, and you secretly admire them and you secretly hate them because you feel the gap between you and them. And you wonder, is that the way that I'm supposed to be? Is that normal? Uh, perhaps uh, another uh, way that this shows up, or another person that you're tempted to look at and wonder, is it normal? Is this the person, is, this, is a normal Christian the kind of person who thinks about God every now and then, kind of when they're lonely uh, or feeling guilty, uh, or wanting to connect with God, they come to church or they go to a Bible study or something like that. It's kind of a need-based relationship uh, with God. Is that the normal Christian? Uh, or maybe you're wondering if you're normal. Struggle? You feel like the pattern of your life as a Christian is one step forward and two steps back? You wonder if any ground you've ever gained is always lost when you fall. And you wonder, is that normal? Or is there something really wrong with me? Am I a Christian? Do you see why that question is so important? It's, it's a lot's on the line. Uh, your emotional well-being's on the line. Your sanity's on the line. Your relationship with other people and, and um, you, the perception of your relationship with God is on the line uh, in a sense there too. So it's an important question to ask, uh, what is a normal Christian? Because who you say is normal or what you say is normal, that's the person you compare yourself to. Whatever brand of Christianity or picture of the Christian life that you have stamped normal on. That's what you compare yourself to. That's what you feel like you fall short of. Or if you're the rare person in the room, I think most of us would realize we fall short to that standard, but you might be the rare person who thinks you succeed because you have a really low bar, and hey, it's convenient to have a low standard because you always meet it. Uh, but, but whoever we are in the room, that's, this is why the question's important. And I'm about to tell you and try to persuade you that, yes, Paul is talking about himself in Romans 7. If you listen to the passage, you should be wondering, prove it. Because that sure didn't sound like a Christian to me. Did you hear what he just said? And uh, here's some of what Paul just said. Here's some tidbits. He says, I'll kind of work through it from the top to the bottom. He says, uh, whoever he's talking about, whether himself or some hypothetical Christian or someone before they were saved, he's saying, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. Sometimes I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I, or I do what I don't want to do, but I do the very things I hate. That's a mouthful. I always mess that up. He says, I know that nothing good dwells inside of me. The evil that I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. And he says, it seems as almost as regular as the law of gravity. Every time I want to do good, there's good intentions. I prepare, I gear up. It seems like evil is right there in the moment to snatch me up and to ambush me. And he concludes and he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Uh, and 
maybe you should be wondering, prove it, Ben. How in the world is that a Christian? Or much more than that, how's that an apostle who is different than us in the sense that he saw Jesus? He was taught by Jesus himself. He was doing miracles. He's a pillar of the church. We've been studying his words all semester long. Is this Paul describing himself? Uh, Because that's the only way we could say this is maybe normal for the Christian life. And I think he is describing himself. And here's the evidence. By the way, um, very careful, people who treat the Bible very carefully, uh, who are very wise, uh, who are Christians, have a difference of of agreement on uh, is Paul talking about himself or not. Uh, But I think just by process of elimination, the case is pretty compelling that Paul is talking about himself, which means... This can be a me too moment for you if you resonate with what Paul's saying. That's what's on the line here. Can you enter into what's written in Romans 7? Does your journal entry or your diary entry match up with an apostle's? Because it normalizes that and validates it somewhat as normal if it does. If it's not, if you can't enter into this, then what this does is it kind of pushes you out and leaves you in a corner where you're just wondering, am I a freak? Because I don't know if you could resonate with this, but I could. But what's the passage itself say, right? Because we don't want to read our experience into the Bible. We want to read the Bible. Here's some evidence. He says a couple of things. Number one, I am of the flesh. Uh, But he says the law is good, but I am of the flesh. We'll kind of wrap all of this up in just a second. But here's kind of some of the points I'm seeing. He says there's an internal, whoever he's talking about, he sees this internal contradiction between what he wants. Something inside of him wants, desires, delights in the law of God delights in yielding to Jesus, wants to please the Lord, okay? But he sees my members, right? What I end up doing in my day-to-day life oftentimes doesn't match up with that internal desire. He says, I love and I delight in the law, which is good. He affirms the goodness of the law. He has a hatred for the day-to-day things he sees himself doing. He says, I hate it. I hate it that I do that. I don't want to, but I do. This is frustration about him, that, uh, that my best intentions oftentimes don't come to fruition. My best intention to have a quiet time in the morning, my best intention to love my roommate better, my best intention to put filters up that actually work, that I don't sneak around. But he says, I oftentimes see myself failing even in the middle of that. And my question to you is, is this, are these the words of a Christian or the words of someone who's dead in their sin? The answer is pretty clear if you read Romans 8. Paul says it's impossible for someone who's dead in their sin, someone who's not alive in Jesus, it's impossible for them to delight in the law. Because the law for you, if you're not in Jesus, the law is only threats. It's only condemnation. It only is a megaphone that screams how you don't measure up, right? Um, the gospel uh, shows us how to, how to relate to the law in a proper way. Jesus fulfills it for us. But if you're not in Jesus, the law is only... Um, a dark thing for you. And so this is a person who has a humble view of himself. He's humble. He's weak. Uh, He has an honest and realistic kind of evaluation of his own sin, right? He's not like, he's not posturing, he's not pretending, he's not pretending like he's a great guy. He's very honest about the way he really is. And we'll talk about this in a little bit, but he has a very solid confidence in Jesus being the one who can deliver him. And so, again, is this a person who's alive or a person who's dead? Is this a person who has the spirit or a person who's DOA, dead on arrival? 
I would argue with you, and I would say that uh, I think it's pretty obvious when you look at it that way, that Paul is talking about himself. And so this isn't just a picture, perhaps, of a Christian. This is a picture of a mature Christian, of a godly Christian. Whoa. Perhaps we need to redefine what we call maturity, what we call godliness. If this is a picture, if this is kind of on the table for still being the description uh, of an apostle or a strong Christian. And so what does this mean for you? It means a couple of things before we push on. It validates, if this resonates with you, if that frustration is a frustration you feel, if you feel the division between what you want to do in your innermost being and what you end up doing, if there is a gap between this yearning in your spirit to love the Lord and love your neighbor, if the law is beautiful to you, if you see it as life-giving and good, and yet... Your day-to-day life doesn't seem to doesn't seem to prove how much you love it. Uh, then this validates that tension. It says, in a way, it's kind of par for the course for the Christian who's alive. For the true Christian, this Romans seven description, this diary entry from the apostle, means it's 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 normal. It's par for the course, and it means that you can press on in your struggle. You remember that question: Am I normal? What you're really asking when you ask the question, am I normal or am I a freak who's out in the corner by him or herself? What you're really asking is, is there hope for me? Is there hope for me? And if Paul is saying that this is normal for the Christian, then the question, is there hope for you, is answered as well. It also means really quick, the the flip side of that coin, if this is a struggle that is not describing at some level what you experience on a weekly basis in your life, if that tension is not there, if there's not a pull between you loving the Lord and us leaving the Lord, if there's not a tension between loving and affirming the law as good uh, and breaking the law, if that tension, that pull isn't there, if it's just wanting to leave God, if it's just ridiculing the law, seeing it as stupid, seeing it as bad, seeing it as a life taker, then this passage raises an uncomfortable question of are you alive? If Paul's describing the normal Christian life, if he's saying this is what you can expect, being alive but sin still dwelling in you, um, if that's not describing your day-to-day existence, um, there's a big question in front of you. But there's also a big gospel in front of you, but you've got to deal with that question of are you alive? Because this is what Christians' day-to-day experience is like. <clears throat> These are the divisions that are there. Real quick, uh, a lot of us, maybe there's another explanation if this doesn't seem to resonate with you. A lot of us tooth and nail fight that this could be the normal Christian life. We don't want it. We avoid conflict. We avoid tension. We avoid struggle. Uh, We don't want anything to do with it. We really believe deep down inside that the Christian life is supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be autopilot. Once I'm raised up in Jesus, once I'm justified and I measure up in Jesus, God declares me righteous. Once I have the Holy Spirit in me animating my steps in my life, it's just supposed to happen automatically. It's like unrolling a red carpet. It just unfolds. You don't have to think about it. It's second nature. Uh, We want to believe that. And so when we bump into these kind of struggles and tensions and realities about ourself and the sin that remains in us and wreaks havoc... Uh, we push it away through a, a few different ways. Number one, we look for secret formulas to get rid of the tension. 
Uh, I can't tell you how many books on my bookshelves at home I bought to try to relieve the tension Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. I spent the first couple of years as a Christian looking for a magic bullet, kind of like a cure-all or something to make the tension go away, make the struggle go away, make the pull go away. Uh, And so I bought book after book. Maybe the next book will have that line in there or that quote. Or maybe the next sermon or podcast that I listen to will kind of propel me out of this. Maybe the next conference I go to. Maybe the next RUF retreat that I go to. Maybe the next week when Ben talks or my small group. Maybe I'm just missing a piece of information. And if I can get the right formula, this will all go away. And I'll be the triumphant, strong, godly Christian that I want to be. Which kind of reveals deep down inside, you, are, you and God have a big disagreement. He says the Christian life is a life of persevering in trial. He says it's a life of great joy in the midst of great hardship. But you say it's supposed to be easy and it's not. And so I need to find a way around the difficulty. And we look for it in any kind of formula that's promising. We look for it in a new experience. You live life from one mountaintop to the next with not much of an idea of how to live in the valley, which is where most of the Christian life is lived. And so you spend all of the time in the valley not knowing what to do and just trying to figure out how do I get to a mountain again. And you use sometimes people or things or other stuff to try to get back up there. But the bulk of your life seems to you confusing and wasted because you don't know what to do in the lowlands. You only know what to do in the, to- in the-, in the mountain tops. And so we look for that next experience, um, that next worship experience, that next emotional experience uh, to propel you out of this struggle. And the last thing is we avoid it. Maybe this is the most popular. Because if you live enough time, if you live long enough in the valley waiting on that next mountaintop, if you live long enough kind of waiting on the next experience or waiting on uh, the next formula and it doesn't come, or maybe it doesn't last very long. Maybe you just started avoiding this tension altogether. Uh, it's easier not to think about it. Uh, and so you maybe don't think about it. Or you find a way to preoccupy yourself with all kinds of other stuff. We do this, right? We preoccupy ourselves with all kinds of other stuff uh, to try to suppress this because we don't know what to do with the tension. We don't believe deep down that it's normal. That's the main point here, right? I, I think God is saying this is normal because of the landscape of your heart right now. And if you disagree with him and push back, it just brings tremendous amount of confusion and tension. You'll always feel like the freak in the corner who's different than everybody else. There's no hope for you. So please hear me say that the sense of fighting, the sense of warfare inside of you, God says is normal. So hopefully that's um, clear by that, clear by now. If we avoid... The tension, if we try to avoid this struggle and find a way to get catapulted out of it, we miss out on a lot. Because one of the purposes, one of the way that God's re- God redeems sin struggles that he doesn't remove you from. I didn't say he causes sin struggles. I said if he wanted to get you out of it, he could. He could bring deliverance like that. But one of the ways that he redeems leaving you inside of some of your most frustrating struggles is to bring you to the end of yourself. That's a good thing. <clears throat> To bring you to the end of your rope, to the end of yourself, to the end of your resources, your strength, your wisdom, your books, your next experiences.
to sever the tie between that stuff. How, does, how do we see this with Paul real quick? He says, uh, Paul kind of gets introspective here, and he lets you be a fly in the wall. This is a really cool moment. He sees his knowledge divided in verse 14. I know that the law is good, but there's also this kind of corrupt, deceptive whisper inside of me that says it's bad, run from it, break it. So the whole landscape of his life, he says, I see that there's a law of sin at work. When you hear a law of sin, think the law of gravity. He's saying something so regular, so dominating, so a part of the landscape like thermodynamics or or laws of motion or laws of gravity. He says, this is a law that you have to take account for, right? If you don't take account for gravity, hardship comes to you is a nice way to put it, right? You get scraped up. If you, don't take, if you don't take into account the law of sin, the law of indwelling sin, not dominating, not mastering, if you're a Christian, but indwelling, remaining, present sin that still wreaks havoc. Uh, if you don't take account for that, um, you're not really thinking about yourself or thinking about other people in the right way. So that's what he means when he says, it's no longer I who sin. He, he keeps saying this thing three times. Uh, that the tongue twister, I keep doing what I don't want to do, or I don't do what I do want to do. And then his conclusion after that, he says, uh, so it's no longer, uh, he says, it is sin at work in me, not me. Now he's not blame shifting. He's not saying, oh, it's not, don't worry about it. Uh, keep on doing what you're doing. It's not really you. It's sin that's at fault. What he's doing is he's saying, it's this, it's this principle, this law of indwelling sin that is kind of in a, in, a, in a subtle way, producing chaos underneath the radar. Which means for you, no matter how many efforts you put into obeying, no matter how diligent of a person you are or want to become, setting your alarm early to get up and read your Bible, you will always find some resistance there. You will always find pushback there. And it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It means sin still dwells in you. Not mastering you but attempting to master you. Uh, Still there wreaking havoc, still there bringing chaos. Um, And so Paul is saying, that's the problem, is this indwelling sin always pushing against you. Do you hear what what Jake read earlier? The the spirit and the flesh are at war with one another, pulling against one another. There's a war going on inside of us. Paul's talking about that. This war will bring you to the end of yourself. Why? Because no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you grow, when you look at your delights, your desires, your knowledge, you will see a division, a pull there. You will see multiple allegiances there. Delighting in God's law. Loving it. Wanting to obey it. But at the same time, look at your track record that week. And clearly in those moments, we don't love it. And so it's kind of a divided story. I heard a great uh, illustration one time of what the Christian life is like. My professor said the Christian life is like a man walking up a staircase with a yo-yo, and you're the yo-yo. And so there is a slow, gradual growth. There is a real growth that happens in the Christian life. This is not all Paul says about the normal, everyday Christian life. Romans 8, beautiful stuff, life in the Spirit. But at the very least, Paul's describing the Christian life for you will be like This very slow, over the course of decades, maturity and growth, but in the day-to-day, it still feels like a a violent up and down. 
One day is awesome. You know those mornings you wake up and you are, like your heart is passionate about Jesus. You love him. You want him. You want to pray. You want to live for him that day. And it either seems like the rest of the day is actually pretty good or the rest of the day train wrecks. But either way, the next morning you wake up and the first thoughts on your mind are going back to the same vomit that you went back to a couple of days before. And you hate it. And you're like, when's this going to go away? Um, but that's what Paul's talking about is uh, these things, this yo-yo, this up and down is still there, even though true progress and true growth is happening. We push on to the third point. This, this struggle isn't just normal, and it doesn't just drive us to the end of ourselves, but it also is intended to drive you to the same place that drove Paul. There's a big difference in Paul and many of us. Paul's introspection Paul's self-analysis didn't hit a dead end with himself the way my introspection often does. When I look at my life, when I look at my desires, my delights, my knowledge, and all the divisions there, all the contradictions there, I often stop there in a place of just despair or frustration or just screw it, throw in the towel. And I have a feeling you're like me, that your introspection also stays stuck on you. And Paul shows us that seeing our weakness, seeing our frustrating inability to be where we want to be, to grow as fast as we want to grow, Paul says that introspection as we look inside of ourselves should bring you to the end of yourself so that you move to Jesus. Not so that you stay stuck with yourself and your poverty and your lack of resources. And so Paul's, Paul's poverty, his weakness pushes him uh, to Jesus. I told you the first few, two years of my Christian life, uh, ironically, I was also an RUF intern the first couple of years of my Christian life, uh, and so it made that an extra hard time. Um, but two of the three years I was an intern were the two hardest years of my life. And the reason why is because I had had like a year of a honeymoon as a Christian. I, uh, I never had to work to read my Bible. I just, I wanted to read it all the time. I wanted to pray all the time. Not in a cheesy, stupid way, but in a like, I love this. Uh, certain sin patterns that had absolutely killed me. Some of them, not all of them, some of them disappeared overnight. Not in any of my own effort. I just didn't have an interest in that anymore. And then a year later, goes, a year goes by, and a lot of this stuff starts to creep back in. Some of it stays gone by God's grace, but some of it starts to creep back in, and I begin to struggle again, and I begin to feel like I did before I was a Christian. And I didn't really know much about Romans 7, so I'm asking, is this normal? This can't be normal. Something really bad is wrong. And um, because I'm a pretty emotionally driven guy, I started listening to my emotions too. And my emotions, your emotions will never preach the gospel to you. They'll just preach the law. They'll just bash you. Uh, but I listened to my emotions. I wasn't very mature at the time. I listened to everything they said. And my emotions were basically saying, you suck. You're dead. No, there's no way Jesus could be pleased uh, with you. There's no way you could measure up in him. There's no way God's made you righteous. Look at your life. And what brought me out of that over the course of two years, which is a lot of nights thinking about this, like 700 nights going to bed thinking about this, two years of repeatedly Jesus loving me by putting people in my life, loving me by putting people like John Newton, who I'll read from in just a second, into my life, uh, putting songs into my life. Th those things got me unstuck on Ben. 
they pushed my introspection past me and all of the stuff that was true about me, and it pushed me on to look at Jesus, the Savior of sinners, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter of the weak, the Helper. Uh, and earlier, I was, I, it seemed like I was bashing books and songs and all that, so you're like, well, why are you so big on them right now? I wasn't, this is a, a pivot. Earlier, I would buy books to try to be Jesus for me, to try to resurrect me. Uh, what was different this time is I knew these books were reminding me of what was already true. These books were pointing me to Jesus. They weren't kind of the cure-all. All they did is point to him. Um, here's one way how. Here's one way that your ongoing struggle with sin, God redeems it and uses it for much more than it would ever be used for otherwise. He says this. This is in a, John Newton's an old pastor. He wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote a letter to one of his ladies in his congregation one time who was struggling with this kind of stuff. This is normal. And he titled his letter, The Advantages of Remaining Sin. He says, the gracious purposes to which the Lord makes the sense and feeling of our own depravity um, subservient to. Let me translate that. He's basically saying the ways Jesus uses your ongoing struggle with sin, they're many. He says, one way, his own power, wisdom, faithfulness, and love are more clearly displayed. His power in maintaining and sustaining his own work in the midst of so much opposition is like a spark burning in the water or a bush unconsumed in the flames. His wisdom in defeating and controlling all the devices of which Satan uh, throws at us is encouraged to practice against us. And so he's saying all of the times he defends you from the devil, you see his mercy and his strength all the more. He goes on, the constancy of the Lord's love and the riches of his mercy are more illustrated by the multiplied pardons he bestows upon you than if, they, than if you needed no forgiveness at all. That's crazy. He says Jesus' mercy is more clearly communicated to you by his thousands of pardons, thousands of moments of mercies that he shows you, rather than just one time. And your continual falling provides continual moments of mercy. And that is the way you learn to trust Jesus. You learn he is for you. You taste his mercy. is by continually falling and tasting that. He says a lot more that I'd love to read, uh, but I'll, I'll leave this up front if any of you want to come take a picture of it. Uh, but it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, picture of how God will even redeem the sin that remains in you and use it for your good. He says to the sailor who just went through like a 30-minute storm on the high seas and then gets to the harbor, who's happier? Who's more relieved to get to the safe harbor? The sailor who goes through the 30-minute storm or the one who's been at sea for a month and every single night he thought he was going to die, but he was saved. Who's more relieved? Who's more confident? Who's more rejoicing when he gets to the safe harbor? Same is true with you. Repetitive rescue. Repetitive mercy. Where you begin to see that Jesus is patient. That is what begins uh, to bring you joy even in the midst of ongoing struggle. So here's my last question that we finish with. What do you do tomorrow? With Romans 7, what difference does it make in your day-to-day life, which is obviously very complicated according to Romans 7? What difference does any of this make? Where is the struggle going to lead you? Maybe that's the question you leave with. Where does the frustration, the tension, the struggle, where does it take you? Where could it take you tomorrow? Does it just leave you with yourself? Leave you in unbelieving anxiety, unbelieving despair, discouragement, 
Or is there a way that Jesus is using this to draw you more near to himself, to keep you on a shorter leash with himself? When you ask the question, who will save me from this body of death, do you ever get an answer? Do you hear God there in the moment, on the spot, never tiring of saying, I deliver you from the penalty, from the power, from the presence of this remaining sin? Do you ever hear an answer? What would it look like to believe the answer that you hear in Romans 7? This is the gospel that your indwelling sin uh, is designed to bring you to. This is one of the reasons God leaves the struggle in this life. Not because you're not alive, not because you're not a Christian. Because he is tethering you to himself. That you learn to leave, to give up on your own resources. Your own power is pitiful. Run to Jesus. Cling to him. Find him strong. Find him for you. That's the point of the passage. We'll hear the other half in January, Romans 7, or Romans 8, Life in the Spirit. But for now, let's pray. Let's go in this confidence in the mix of the complexity. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have not left us alone in just dealing with our sin, that you have not left us in death, but you've actually made us alive. We pray that you would help us to look past ourselves in this struggle and see you that we would not just be despairing of our own weakness and our own poverty, our own inability, but we would run to the ability that you've given us through the Holy Spirit, the power that you've given us in him. We pray that you would produce that in us, that you would encourage us, those of us who were stuck in a place like I was those years ago, those of us who are stuck in a place of frustration like I'm familiar with now, we pray that gospel, fresh air, of your mercy would come into those places. Thank you for this semester, Lord Jesus. Thank you for teaching us what you have. Give us grace to remember these things over the next month until we join again. We ask this in your name. Amen.